0: Well, good morning to you guys. So good to see you. A thank you to all the couples who took some time to share with us their time and their experience through the Cherish course. And, and just a, an encouragement to all of us who are married. Um, you know, I'm mindful that there are things in life that just need maintenance. When was the last time you changed the oil in your car or, you know, put some new tires on it? You know, stuff just needs maintenance. And we live in a fallen world. And so this is a wonderful opportunity to learn some insights that are very meaningful, right? One of the things that I can have noticed, I think, in meeting with couples through the years is that the wear and tear of life can kind of make you lose the sweetness of being husband and wife. You're still husband and wife and you still function, but the kind of the sweetness of that gets lost through the grind. And this is very much a course about that. It is focused on those kinds of dimensions to to bring that sort of intentionality and care to one another that that just becomes easy to displace. So uh, I think everybody can benefit from from this material. Uh, So if, if you can set aside a few weeks and be in the course beginning at the end of January, limited space, as I think Evan mentioned, 15 couples at a time is what we're doing with the course. So uh, jump in if you're interested. Don't wait until later because it may be that you won't be able to do that. And it looks like this is a good time of year for you. Definitely want you to to do that. A quick thank you. Uh, I know many of you have been praying for my son, Luke, who had knee surgery a couple of days ago. And if you've ever had knee surgery, you know what a fun event that is and what a challenge recovery is, but but he's doing well and I appreciate the prayers and, and just, you know, being front row seats for caring for people just reminds me that there, there are a bunch of folks in our church who have been through seasons of physical afflictions and diagnosis and treatments and surgeries and recovery. Um, when, I, when I hear from those guys, they are so encouraged by the people who are praying for them. Just a mindfulness of that. Because you know, if you've been through that sort of thing, you know you run out of energy, right? You don't have the gas to be praying, but, but when you know that other people are, it makes a massive difference. So thank you to the church and those of you on our prayer chain who have made praying a priority. All right. If you would open your Bible this morning to Romans, if you just find Romans. I want to give you a couple of thoughts from Romans before we get into our passage today. Uh, this is our last, uh, week in the series on hope. Uh, I, I gotta be careful how I say that. I don't want to sound like after this week we're done with hope. Um, So don't hear me say that. Hopefully, we're going to be much more hopeful than ever, uh, but we're not going to be focused on the topic moving forward. Um, You know, we study a lot of things in Scripture, rightly so. And sometimes there's a disconnect between how much knowledge we're acquiring and how much of that knowledge is being translated into experience in our lives. Right. So when you read the letter to the Romans, I think I'm safe to say, I don't know if I could find a theologian in the world who would say different that Romans is probably the weightiest theologically doctrinally driven book in the Bible. It's just filled with massively important concepts and doctrines, everything from justification and the explanation of the gospel to the atonement and propitiation. I mean, they're just big words and big concepts in the book of Romans but but what's the outcome of that? Right? What is God after, after you and I have learned all these big words and these weighty concepts? Well, on the one hand, I would say it's, it's for an accurate ability to explain God and his gospel. Information is there for that. So it may be that um, I study Romans so that I can defend the faith. I can have a debate with somebody that squares away what sound doctrine is. But you know, Christianity is not just for eggheads, right? It's not just so that you and I can argue a point from the Bible and corner somebody else. That There's something that God's after in this book. And would you know, without me telling you this, that the, the book of Romans mentions the word hope 17 times? You think maybe God's interested in us experiencing hope? You think maybe God tells us a lot of this stuff so that we can experience Hope? All right, if I if I walk you through some of that, right. If you have a Bible, you can kind of flip through these verses. I'm not going to live in them at all. all. Right, Romans chapter four talks about hope. Romans chapter five is what we're going to be going back to. Romans eight, verse twenty says, "For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope." Right. That's a massive explanation. What did God do to the universe when it fell? When it went into this other posture, well, he, he did something for the sake of hope. It's like the action God took was for the sake of hope. And verse 24 says, for in this hope, we are saved. The hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's an aspect of living our lives attached to we hope for something, right? And then Romans chapter 15, verse four, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Did I read the wrong verse? Verse four, I'm sorry. For whatever was written in former days, including Romans and everything else, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God, why do you write down Romans? Why does it got such weighty stuff in it? Why all this understanding of law and grace? And Why is that here? So that we might have hope. All right, so look at this last verse before I get into the message this morning. I want to pray through this verse. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. This, this verse sits at this moment where Paul's kind of done teaching now. He's been teaching and imparting for 15 chapters and now he's about to turn the corner into what sounds like, hey, um, hope to come see you guys. Hugs, kisses, love you. Uh, one day I hope to get by there and, and visit you. All right, that's about where he's about to go. So this is his kind of concluding mood when he says this in verse 13 in Romans 15. May the God of hope... I know we know God to be a lot of things. He's the God of righteousness, God of salvation. But here he is the God of hope. Fill you with joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Why don't we teach through a series on hope? Why do we teach from the letter to the Romans? Why do we learn the Bible Listen, it's not just that we put more knowledge on our bookshelves and our brains. It is so that our lives can take on these qualities, qualities here of joy and peace and hope. Not as concepts outside of us, but as actual experiences that we are having in our lives. So when you came in this morning, you look back over last week, you look at the season that you're in. Do you feel these words in your life? Are they operating? Do you feel the comfort and the impact of joy in your life? Does, does peace show up in a way that I actually feel it? I mean, there's a lot to be anxious about, isn't there? There's a lot to be concerned about in our world. But does peace come in and, and kind of nudge anxiety to the side to where, hey, I was feeling anxious, but you know, I'm feeling this peace. I'm actually experiencing this. Am I abounding in hope? God, doesn't just want you to learn that, hey, there's this thing called hope. He wants it to actually flow in us so that at moments, even in this fallen place, I'm in touch with something that feels like hope on the inside. And so let's pray together before we jump into this passage one more time. Lord, thank you for wanting things for us we don't always even know what that should be but lord you do and you are abounding in desires for our lives you want us to experience joy and peace and abound in hope large volumes huge amounts of experiencing hope in our lives. And God, I thank you that as I I hear the inspiration of the Spirit and the Apostle Paul, I don't hear him praying. One day, when you finally get to heaven, you will experience joy. Then you will have peace and abound in hope. Lord, I, I thank you that the Holy Spirit sees this as something for us today. joy. Real joy, peace, kind that passes understanding and hope abounding in our lives. So Father, would you help us today as we conclude this series, not to just have gathered more information, but Lord, to have experienced the good of what we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Romans chapter 5. We're back to our passage that we have spent quite a bit of time in since the beginning of December. One more time in that passage today. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith to this grace. In which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, now, something that is in this passage that is only there if you, you look for it in the language component of what's here is two types of statements find their way into this paragraph. And these are very important things to know about because you're reading them all the time in the Bible. But they serve a particular function by God's design. right? So in the Bible, you find indicative statements and you find imperative statements statements. And unless you're a grammar nerd, those, the second word, you kind of know the first word. You're not quite sure what that means, but they're extremely important in the Bible because God makes particular kinds of statements. And they're like missiles that he is launching that when they find our lives, they're supposed to kind of blow up in a certain way and produce something in us. And they don't intend to produce the same thing in us. So in the Bible, almost in every setting, whether it's this paragraph and the one next to it, or whether it's mixed into the paragraph like this, you're going to find indicative statements mixed in with imperative statements, right? So here's what an indicative statement is. It's a statement of facts, just telling you the truth about something, telling you how it is. In biblical theology, they feature statements about God and what God has done. That's what they're saying. So there's moments when you're reading in the Bible, it is just telling you the facts about God, telling you of his character, telling you of his nature, telling you what he's like, telling you what he's done, reminding you about what he's done, right? And in this passage, there are these statements of facts to us. Now, be careful. I think I wrote this in your outline. These are statements and conditions that are true. They're not things that we are going to make true by something that we do that's pretty important because i know a lot of people who develop a theology that sort of gets puts god in this cause and effect relationship with us and his hands are tied and he's very passive and he's not very aggressive and he's just waiting for us to prompt him to do the things that he does and, and there are things in the Bible that kind of can feel that way a little bit. But if you read the indicatives of God carefully, you'll find they overwhelm you with this sense that God does and God is regardless of you and me. He is a certain way and he does certain things. And my soul needs to know that. And that is being launched into my life for me to consider in a particular way, right? So I underlined in your outline there, these are the indicatives that are, tucked away in this passage we've been staring at we have been justified by faith fact that's just simply true there's a reality of our lives that is completely 100 factually true we have been past tense accomplished and done justified before god our standing with him our rightness with him it's a done deal that's not a condition that's waiting for us to get it done. It's not something that we're working on. And, and, and listen, you know, most of us who have grown up here in New Orleans, we grew up under denominational influence, as I did, that when I began to read the Bible and see what it actually, actually accurately said about my justification, I began to speak about myself with God in a different way. And it freaks some of my relatives out because it sounded very arrogant. Right? It sounds arrogant for me to say, hey, so, you know, Keith, if you died today, man, you, you think you go in heaven? God's going to let you in heaven? And my response sounding like, oh, absolutely. That sounds kind of arrogant, right? Kind of like, oh, really? I don't know. Why would you think that sounds arrogant? Well, because um, how do you know if you've done enough? How do you know if you know, you still got some life to live? How do you know you don't kind of screw it up in the future? How do you know you're not going to just fall short? How do you know your best effort's not as good as it needs to be? I mean, I'm, personally, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of crossing my fingers. I hope so. Um, the reason why you say that is because you don't understand the indicative statement about being justified through Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ has done something on our behalf, on our behalf, in our place, to grant to us the status of justification. It never was what I was going to do. It never was about how awesome I'm going to be. I don't have to wait until the end of my life and hope that somehow I've accumulated along the way enough green stamps to cash them in when I get to heaven and be okay with God. That's not justification. And that's not how the Bible ever presents justification justification is a fact so I, i'm as right with god right now as i'm ever going to be no matter how good or bad of a week i have this week that's a fact right so the bible wants to deliver that to me and wants to launch that missile to me and wants it to land a certain way in my life and not only that i have peace with god right now i'm as at peace with god as i'm ever going to be right now that's a fact Now, I know in the room right now, because if different people have read the Bible at different levels and you feel certain ways, and and let's be honest. You could feel like your peace with God has to do with something about how at peace you are with yourself and the life you've been leading lately. And how devoted to God you are and whether or not, hey, beginning of the year, you've just started your Bible reading program, right? You're probably keeping up at at least right now, right? It's only been a week. So I'm at peace with God. I'm good with God. See, because I'm up to date on my Bible reading. Uh, what if you weren't? What if it's December and you were a whole year behind? What if you got your church giving statement in the mail or email a month ago and you looked at that and you went, oops, busy year. Forgot to give to the church at all. Are you at peace with God? And you may not be at peace with me, but are you at peace with God? Yes. Because you're peace with God, you possess that. It is yours. It's not waiting for the jury to come back. It's not waiting for you to finish the performance so that the judges can say, you got a 10. It's done. It's fact. We have access in this passage by faith into this grace. We have it. That's an indicative statement. It's a fact. You have access to Grace. And if you'll take grace out of the Bible and stare at it in all of its amazing nuances, and I won't unpack this severely, but you have access to something that is coming after you, that is intent on blessing you, that has made an arrangement with you in spite of yourself to do good to you all the days of your life. You have access to that every day of your life. The days that you feel motivated and the days that you don't. The days that you have a big opinion of God and the days that you have a low opinion of him. You have access to this grace. This grace is coming your way because that's how God is. And the Bible just wants you to know that. And it wants you to accept that as the fact. Well, that's not how I feel. Can I just tell you this as nicely as possible? God doesn't care how you feel in that sense. He just wants you to accept the facts. So I'm accepting these facts. That last statement, verse five, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now you may be here this morning and you you don't feel loved by God. I mean, stuff happens, right? We don't feel loved by all kinds of people. And it happens sometimes where the series of events that just unfolded in my life makes me question whether God Loves me. All right? Me too. With you. But here's the facts. You know, if, if there were some heavenly bucket of love, if God could exude into a visual bucket his love for us, his affection, his desires toward, his cravings over relating to us and, and, and pouring himself into us. The facts of the matter are if there's a YouTube video of God pouring his love into our hearts. That's a fact. Oh, but I, I don't feel loved by God. I, I understand, but your feelings aren't the facts. This is the facts. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. That's a fact. Welcome to 2021. I don't know what incredible things we may have to do in this year, and I don't know how inadequate many of us will feel to do them, but fact, you have been given the Holy Spirit to comfort you, to care for you, to enable faith in your life, to help you respond to God's leading and conviction, to empower you to do things. That's a fact. Well, I don't feel real powerful. I understand. I get that. The feelings are always competing with these, but these are the facts of the Bible. That's what indicative statements do. But then there are these imperative statements that are tucked away right alongside these things. And the imperative statements, they feel different because the indicative statements are very passive statements. You didn't create any of them and you can't really change them. So you just sit and watch them and appreciate them. Imperative statements, you're kind of not allowed to sit. Imperative statements are statements of commands and in, in biblical theology. They feature things that we are called to do, right? So when God launches imperative statement missiles and they blow up in our lives, they're not inviting you to sit down, take notes, observe, and go, wow. Wait, that's really true of me and God? Wow. That's what an indicative statement is designed to do when it lands. An imperative statement is designed for you to actually do something. That's what it's trying to get you to do. It doesn't want you to be passive. It wants you to take Action and both of those are in the Bible. And I know we need to be careful how we use these, but I can't get around the fact that they are in the Bible. The Bible is designed a certain way, and it is a massive mistake on our part to uh, love one more than the other, to dismiss one at the expense of the other. And I understand why this happens, and I will do this, I probably do it in messages. Um, You know, years of protecting the doctrine of justification that that the the church has gone through years in that uh, historically. And when that happens, the doctrine of justification is seeking to let you know what God has done, what God has done, what God has done, not what you have done, what God has done. So it's trying to pull your attention away from what you do into what God has done. That, That can be a corrective measure. And personally, you might need that sort of help. But in the same passage, it just told us how we are justified. It also is now going to call us to do something. So, what you can't do is redesign the Bible, kind of pull this Thomas Jefferson moment where you cut out all the commands because the commands make you feel funny before God. Well, there's something else wrong with you. The problem's not with the Bible, the Bible's not wrongly speaking to you when it tells you to do things. You and I might be wrongly receiving it, but the Bible's not wrong in that, right? So consider this in your outline. I put indicatives present to us things that we are called to recognize, to know, to be convinced of, to believe. And the imperatives present us with things, something to do. They present to us an active response on our part. This is important because while imperatives don't create or change the indicatives... They do contribute to the experiencing of these indicatives. So there is an offer to us in this passage to experience hope in this passage. And it is laced with all these indicative statements that we are to know. And then we are to do something in this passage. We are to stand in grace and rejoice in hope. Those are actions. They're attitude, actions and they're decisions that we make. We are to stand in grace. Now notice, God's not doing the standing here. We are to rejoice, to actually have an attitude of rejoicing. God is not doing the rejoicing here. We are doing that. So we're going to have to take ownership of something in this equation that God has called us to. And it's important that we notice that, that the Bible actually teaches this as a principle, right? James chapter 1. fact, James chapter 1 is just a very helpful commentary on Romans 5 in a number of ways. But James chapter 1 verse 21, listen. James says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, right? What kind of statement is that? All right. I'm not going to pull a Peter on and make you answer all my questions. But what kind of statement is that? That's a command, right? It's telling you to do something. Is it telling God to do it? Is it telling God to do it instead of you doing it? You know, God doesn't have a need to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. I do. So this is something that I'm going to be doing. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But... James says, verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Indicative statements involve a great deal of looking intently. That's exactly what we should be doing. We should be looking intently at the statements God has made about Himself, about us, about our relationship with Him. We should look intently at them. But there are things that God calls us to do in response to what we have seen. And when we lack the doing part, look where this goes next, verse 23. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So you've got one person who has looked intently, but didn't do anything in response to places he was called to do. And he ends up forgetting what he stared at. And I see that as a a story of not much impact. Not much, wow, God is amazing. No, no. Yeah. Remember, I read a book one time. Yeah, that was a really cool message. It was like a couple of years ago. But there wasn't any putting it on. There wasn't even anything that created the experiencing of that. And so, therefore, we just kind of tend to forget what we've stared at. But the person who perseveres, the person who puts on, the person who is walking in the imperatives that are correctly designed for us, he will be blessed in his doing. He begins to experience something. There's blessing in that. So in this study that we're having on this Romans 5 passage, the return of, of hope, uh, what what is this Bible passage calling us to do? It wants us to have an experience. It wants us to experience hope. What is it asking us to do? Well, it's asking us to stand in grace and rejoice. Right now, rejoice. So I want, today, I, I want to emphasize. What that rejoicing does in this equation that God has created, because in this setting of Romans five, we can see that, that there's some mechanism in place here that rejoicing plays a part in our experiencing of hope. So let me, let me illustrate that by telling a story about a bear. And I, and I didn't even come up with this because we are playing the bears today, although it's quite appropriate that we happen to be it's just God's sovereignty, bringing everything together. Um, I mean, I titled the message today, Pulling the Trigger on Hope. So here's your situation. You are visiting Alaska. It's a beautiful time of year. It's not snow everywhere. Just a beautiful time of year. And I don't know if you know much about Alaska. As a matter of fact, I remember Phil and Liz had gone to, to visit uh, their oldest son and family in Alaska. And so Phil's sending me pictures, you know, making me like, you know, I'm comparing, I'm sending him pictures of Destrahan. He's sending me pictures of Alaska. It's a little different, you know? I like the levee. Look, Phil, the levee. Um, so he's sending me these massive mountain pictures. And he sends me one day uh, two bears crossing the street, one house down from his son's house, thinking, you know, they got possums in my neighborhood and raccoons in my neighborhood. I can deal with that. But if there are bears living in my neighborhood, I'm living in the wrong neighborhood. That's my opinion on that. But you're, let's say you go visit Alaska and you decide one day you're going out hiking. And you clear the edge of the tree line into this massive valley, meadow type place of rolling hills. And you just begin to wander across that field. And it's just beautiful. Mountain way off in the distance. And you come up over a rise and just as you come to the other side of it, you find yourself too close to a massive mama bear grizzly with her cub and she sees you and she stands up on her back paws and looks at you and you are way out in the middle of a field by yourself. What's your hope in that moment? Yeah, survival technique, right? Um, Your instinct is going to be to do what? Run. Um, I've watched enough National Geographic to be able to tell you that doesn't end well. (laughs) As fat as that bear looks, she's still faster than you by a lot. She's going to catch you. But when you went out for that walk that day, You strapped on your back a massive, powerful rifle to take with you. Now what's your hope? So as she begins to groan and roar and face you with a little bit more intensity, in your mind, you are having all the feelings that go with that. Fear, anxiety, bracing yourself. But you have hope in that moment that when the bear starts to launch out at you and come after you, you have this hope. Now, I'm going to give you the technical hope, the technical hope that you have. The ultimate end of the story hope that you have is that there's a little chunk of lead attached to a thing called a bullet that if it could fly fast enough, will pierce that bear and take it down and you will not get mauled. That's your hope. But that hope has a mechanism if it's ever going to happen. If you're ever going to experience that hope, right, you're going to have to take that gun off of your back. You're going to have to lift it to your shoulder. You're going to have to stand there. Not run in the opposite direction. Stand there and aim the gun at the bear. You are then going to have to pull the trigger on that gun. And then if we could slow motion that moment, there's a hammer that's going to go off inside the gun that's going to strike a firing pin that's going to strike the backside of a bullet that's going to cause the gunpowder inside the bullet to explode. And it's going to send a force to that piece of lead that's going to hurl it out of the end of that gun at an incredible velocity. And it's going to travel the 40 yards that it needs to because the bear, you don't want him to get any closer than that. And that bullet is going to pierce the skin of that bear and the bear is going to fall to the ground. Ultimately, your hope is that last part, right? Because obviously if you miss, you're still in trouble. (laughs) Your hope is that the, the bullet can do its job in that moment. That's hope. But there were mechanisms that got you to experiencing that hope, right? You took some actions that put you in the place of experiencing hope. That bear falling to the ground was the end result. It was what you hoped for rather than being mauled by the bear, right? So I think in your outline, I put the way hope is presented in this Romans 5 passage shows that hope has some mechanism to it. And there are things that we do that engage that mechanism. Right? The two things that we are called to do in this passage. One, we stand in grace. That's what we are doing in this passage. We are standing in grace, right? So in our story, we are leaning into and believing and trusting in the, the power, the grace of the gun and it's bullets we believe something about that gun we believe that there's something superhuman about that gun right and without the gun and just my own strength anybody convinced i'm gonna take that bear down i'm gonna wrestle him to the ground i'm gonna gonna stab him i'm gonna just take my hand and jam it into his chest and he's gonna anybody believe in any of that now, you are, you are well informed that when you face the bears of life, you have limitations. This is what makes us anxious. This is where fear comes from. Because I know I can't fix that. I don't have the smarts. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I can't make that change. I can't change another person. I can't change their heart. There are things I cannot do. How do I have hope in a setting like that? Well, if I've got... Grace strapped to my back, that grace has some power that's not mine. Grace does something that's beyond my ability. It fires a lead bullet at a ridiculously fast speed in such a way that that bear can't win. That's what grace does. So when I stand in grace. What what am I doing? When I, when I hoist that gun to my shoulder, what am I doing? I am committing myself in faith to believing that this gun here can take that bear down. Now, how many of you guys know that, that you're kind of a fool. If you've got a BB gun strapped to your back, right? You got your, the one that will shoot your eye out. You got it for Christmas and you cocked it. And here comes the bear and you're standing there full of confidence. Okay. You're an idiot. I mean, you're a biblical idiot. That's not gonna have the outcome. You don't have any hope in that moment. But the the gun you have on your back, you've seen it in action. You've seen others shoot it. Hopefully you've shot it. Hopefully at this moment, you've shot it. You've seen it take things down. You've seen it split a pine tree and make the pine tree fall. You know the power of this gun. And because you're knowing that, because you're convinced of that power, guess what you do? You don't run from the bear. You stand there and face the bear. Why? Because of you? No. Because of the grace that's with me. My my gun's named Grace, and it's with me. But I am going to have to point it at the bear, and I'm going to have to pull the trigger. So when I look in this passage... This passage calls on us. Once we've stood in grace, it calls on us to rejoice. It calls on us to take the action of rejoicing. So that's why I want to say rejoicing in this passage is the trigger that we pull in our experiencing of hope. It's what God calls us to do in a moment where hope isn't there yet. When you pull the trigger, the bear's not dead yet. Now it's going to be really quick. Before he is, but if I slowed it down, because isn't that true? You know, God who exists outside of time, you and I have the problem with slowness and fastness, not God. So God sure seems like he's taking a long time. But I think if we had God's perspective, it'd be about the amount of time that it goes from this to boom. Pretty quick. Well, no, God, we live in a slow motion world. Everything you seem to be doing seems to be taking too long. All right, well, that's a different debate. There is an action that we're going to take in this moment. Now, now don't get confused here, right? Don't confuse the human element in this. I can't kill the bear with this, can I? The the same finger that's going to pull the trigger, this finger can't kill that bear, right? If I take the grace of God out of my hands and I do this, that bear is going to eat me. My finger is not going to kill him. I stand and rejoice in the grace of God. It's the grace of God that shows up and does the bear killing in life. That's a very different equation. That doesn't put your imperative actions in the wrong place. That's not about what you do that kills the bear. But there is an action for us in this passage. And when you and I are confronting, you know, when life is a bear, when you are confronted by the bears of life, there are two things this passage calls on us to do. Stand in grace, pull the trigger on rejoicing, right? So rejoicing is an activity. It's an engagement. It's an expression that we do. So let's not let it sit on the shelf because it's not a shelf word. It's an active word for us. The word means rejoice or exult, or boast. It's translated that way throughout the scriptures. The word means a triumphant rejoicing confidence. That's what that word means. Rejoice in such a way that it feels like what's coming out of you is a triumphant rejoicing confidence. I'm confident. I'm not shooting a BB gun here. I'm shooting a cannon. I have some confidence in this. Henderson and Kistemacher in their commentary say the meaning is probably we rejoice greatly when we reflect on the solid basis of the expectation of future bliss. See, there's a moment here where hope has not yet arrived. The bear is still standing and we're going to rejoice before we see what's going to happen to that bear. That's when the rejoicing in this passage is taking place. We are standing in grace, and then we could preach a whole message about that. That this is a moment where faith is in the grace of God. That's where it is. It's in the power of this weapon that we know something about. And so that could be a whole series of messages. As a matter of fact, that's pretty much what we do every Sunday morning. Is to rehearse the truths of God in such a way that we are convinced of his power and his ability So that in a moment when we need to trust him, we actually got some things to trust. We've actually seen the weapon fired over and over and over again. We've got no doubt that weapon will take this bear down. But this morning, I I don't want to focus on you knowing more about the weapon. I want to focus on the reality that we're actually called to action in this passage. We are called to rejoicing. Right, so rejoicing, i put in your outline, it is action. Just like the tendons and muscles in your trigger finger moving intentionally are actions. Rejoicing is the action of, of thought. It's a thought action. It's emotion. It's attitude. It's joyful anticipation that is expressed. It's actually going to find its way out of us. It doesn't sit and somebody else does it. Somebody else looks like they're rejoicing on your behalf. Are you waiting for God to rejoice for you? And In the indicatives of God, God's done all kinds of things that you and I don't have anything to do with. But then the Bible turns around and says, hey, get up and rejoice. I'm gonna be rejoicing. My face is gonna look like it is. My attitude is gonna look like it is. My tone of voice is gonna look like it is. I'm not gonna be a person who looks like he's sucking lemons, living under the fear tree of life. And claim I'm rejoicing. No, you're not. You're just using the word in the Bible while you continue to operate in anxiety and fear. This actually is calling us to rejoice and do something here. James chapter one, verse two. Again, this this section of James, wonderfully helpful in understanding Romans five. Very similar layout. We have looked at this passage before. There's a mechanism here. In what God is doing in the midst of our trials and our facing our bears, if you will. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet bears out on the open field, right? That's the Keith translation just for today. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? So that's one of the things that we've come across in this Romans 5 passage. There's a mechanism to this hope. There is a rejoicing on the front end. We rejoice in our sufferings. That's the moment that we start rejoicing in our sufferings. Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. So we know the bullet is on its way. Right? we Pulling the rejoicing trigger way over here. The bullet is on its way. It's traveling through endurance. And it's traveling through character. And it's going to land in the bear. It's going to touch the need that we're facing in our lives. It may take some time. But it is going to happen. But look at what we do in this first moment. And we do this. We count it. Joy. Who's doing the counting? God? No. I am, I am staring at a circumstance and I am thinking about it intentionally in a particular way. That's what this verse asked me to do. The word count there in the Greek, it's the word to lead or go before to go first to lead the way. It is to think, to be such and such, to esteem as something. So here I am in a moment where I, I have come across this hill in life and I'm encountering a trial that stands up and it's monstrous and it's threatening and it's filling me with fear and anxiety in this moment. And the Bible calls on me to count something a certain way, to think a certain way about that. That, that word, it's used elsewhere in terms of taking the lead. It's used to describe people who are leaders in the community. It is, it is a leadership moment. It is on the front end of this event. It's not on the back end. This rejoicing, this counting as joy, it happens when the bear stands up, not when the bear falls down. Now listen, I don't think the Bible in any way is prohibiting that you and I are celebrating when the bear falls down. Right? I think we can rejoice all we want when the bear goes to the ground. I think we're allowed to rejoice. Matter of fact, the Bible celebrates stuff after God does it for years and years and years and years, and it tells all of us to look back and do it as well. But that's not what this verse is calling us to. This verse is calling us, you know, over here in time is the thump of the bear. Back here is the threat of the bear. At this moment, I pulled the trigger. I mean, unless you're one of those people who goes and shoots him again after he's dead. No, now I'll rejoice. But isn't that what most of us are doing? Isn't rejoicing that sense of confident? Yes. Isn't that usually the caboose on our train rather than the engine that drove us into the moment? But God's calling for something here. And I think this is massively important if I'm going to experience hope. The Bible puts the rejoicing during the threatening moment. Listen, in some ways, this is, this is counterintuitive. This sounds like wishful thinking on our part. can almost sound foolish. I mean, if you were watching from a massive distance, a person walking across that field and you had binoculars out and you watch that person come up upon a bear, and rather than run they stood there and faced the bear, your initial thoughts would be what? What is wrong with this guy? Does he have any idea how this is going to go down? But the natural instinct would be the wrong one, wouldn't it? If you run from that bear, you're going to get mauled. And there are things in our lives that the natural instinct, our natural response to it is to not stand in grace. That's that's the first issue that's the problem. If I stand, if I don't have the gun, let's face it, all I can do is run at that point. Or if I'm out of bullets. Or if I'm just stupid, I don't know what this thing is strapped to my back. I have a powerful weapon strapped to my back, but I've never seen a gun. I've never shot a gun. I am so ignorant about the power of God. What are you going to do now? I'm running. You're running with that big old gun strapped on your back? The bear's going to still catch you and eat you. I don't know what else to do but run. Do you catch the problem in this? It's the ignorance of the grace of God that makes you run from things and get eaten by them. If I know what's attached to my back, I pick it up and I use it. And since I know what's going to come flying out of the end of that gun is going to take that bear down, I'm rejoicing on the front end, even though I haven't seen him fall yet. But I know he will. As soon as that bullet arrives, he's going to be going down. This is is how God installs our interaction with the things of life and, and you actually find this in numerous places. God calls us to a rejoicing on the front end, not just on the back end. All right, All right so one great story here, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Okay. If you don't know this story, this is one of those stories that at some point early on in your Christian life, and you, you read it and you remember Second Chronicles chapter 20. This is just a great, incredible story, lots to learn from. But it's the day King Jehoshaphat is leading the nation of Israel and they're doing life and they come up over a hill and oops, a bear takes notice of them and is coming after them, right? Now for them, it wasn't a bear. It was nations with other Kings coming to attack beginning in verse one, second Chronicles 20 says, and after this. The Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mianites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in on Tamar. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord, right? This bear is now standing on its hind legs looking at the nation of Israel and they're in trouble. It's a big bear. Verse six, he prays and he says, Oh Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdom's Of the nations in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. What is he doing right here? He's remembering all these indicative things that he knows about God. These things that are true that he won't make them true. They just are true. This is what I know to be true about God. Verse 7. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? What, what the hunter is doing in this moment, he's remembering all the other bears he's shot. He's remembering how that gun takes down stuff when you aim it at it and pull the trigger. He's remembering that. He's not wondering. I wonder if this gun will fire when I pull the trigger. I wonder if it'll bounce off the bear. He's not wondering that. He knows that's what this grace does. He's rehearsing the indicatives of God. Verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are... Powerless against this great horde that is coming against us, we do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Right? Isn't that what it feels like to encounter the bear that is in your life? I feel powerless. This thing has power that I can't overcome. I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you. And in verse fourteen, there's this great prayer time in the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, in verse 15. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. Don't run. And see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you let's, let's I mean let's face it when you lift the gun and shoot it the gun did the fighting for you didn't it you will not have to fight this bear that image is in your head of you wrestling with this bear and thinking somehow you can overcome it and trying to figure out how to recover from how it's mauling you get rid of that image just stand there. You don't need to do anything. The, the grace the gun is going to take the bear down. Just stand there. Just don't run. Verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. How many of you guys thought being in the band was safe, right? You want to play on the football team, you might get hurt. I'll play in the band. Ah, I want to rethink that for this group. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. Who, who went first before the battle, before the victory, before anybody gets to sort of throw the celebration party after all the, the enemy's been routed on the field before they're lying dead? Where's the rejoicing? On the front end. Send out the singers, the rejoicers, the ones who celebrate what they know about God. That's what the songs are about. It's what we know about God. We know God has done this and God has done that and God has done that. Send them out first and stand in grace and pull the trigger on rejoicing and let God take care of your enemies. That's how God operates. That is the hope that you and I have as we walk in this world. So this morning... Keith, why don't you come up and help us to do this. This morning, there's there was, there was a reality in our lives, right? There's a reality in our lives. You were doing life in 2020, whatever, wandering through the field, and you came up to this moment, and you came upon a bear in your life. And that bear stood up on its hind legs. And you know something about these bears. This bear could be a diagnosis. This bear could be a relational breakdown. This bear could be a financial ruin. And that bear is in your mind on its way to mauling you. How are you going to have any hope in that moment? Well, God... It's going to tell you to do two things in this moment of seeking hope. Stand in grace and rejoice in the hope that you know is on its way. It's not here yet, though. Exactly. God's not installing rejoicing on the back end. He's installing it now on the front end of your life. So and here's one of the things that we do, and I'm going to invite us to do this in just a moment. I don't want the Holy Spirit to help us a little bit because I, I know we're all here with our own story and our own issues and our own challenges for this to be true for us. But you know, when we come in here and we gather on a Sunday morning to, to sing, right? We, we let rejoicing go first. We let it take the lead in the moment that we are coming before God. We rehearse the amazing things that we know about God and we put them to song listen maybe not a great singer in terms you won't ever be on you know whatever that star American Idol thing is um, maybe that's never going to be you but a heart that rejoices sings it sings that's an expression to not sing, to not express rejoicing, to not let an anticipating confidence come out of our lives, to not ever feel like I actually anticipate. If you don't ever feel that, then I don't think you're in line to be experiencing hope either. Even though you just heard weeks of teaching on hope, you can just file that in the knowledge cabinet and have it available in case you'd like to explain something about hope. But God wants you to feel hope. He wants it to show up on your taste buds, in your mental synapse. He, he wants you to encounter something that, that makes you feel like I stare into my future with a sense of, I can feel the wind in my sails. This is going somewhere. Yeah, but there's a bear in front of you. I know. And you're rejoicing right now. Yeah. I acted like I could do that. And it acted like the more I knew of this grace, the more I would do it. So this morning, let's, let's stand up together. Let's invite God just for a moment into our personal space, into the field that we have been wandering through in Alaska. Lord, I thank you that in your great story, uh, our individual stories matter. And you pay attention to them. And you care about them. So right now, some of us are just in a place where, where we want that hope, God. We want our lives to taste like joy and peace and hope like, like you were after in the scriptures. So Lord, how that's gonna get done, we got a little bit of an idea by studying this passage, but it's still a lot of mystery. But there is some simplicity here. You have called us to do something, even to do it today. Called us to stand in grace. You've called us to rejoice now in hope. So Father, come near to each of us right now in this moment of our lives. Let me just ask you a question. What's the bear in your life right now? Today, this month, or maybe this season of your life, bears are often seasonal, they just tend to stay around for a period of time. What's the bear in your life? The thing that's stirring up your anxieties and your anxious feelings about tomorrow, your struggles? Your imaginations of being mauled in the days ahead. But what is that? Got a label on that yet? Share that with God. He knows it's there. Just be honest with him today. And what are you doing with that bear? What's your strategy? You're running from that bear? You're doing everything in your natural abilities to run from that bear? Or are you standing in grace, convinced knowing that God is a certain way and he has certain power and determination on your behalf? You're like Jehoshaphat who recognized you are the God of our fathers. In covenant with us, you have annihilated enemies in the past. You can do it again. Are you you standing in the grace of God? God, help us this morning. Help us to take all that we know. Lord, we know a lot about you. God, we know about this gun. If we pull the trigger on it, it's powerful. We know that. Help us to know it even more. God, now help us to pull the trigger on rejoicing. Our confident actions and belief in the triumph of God that causes the tone of our voice to turn to singing. God, fill this room with singing. But before we go out to take the battlefield of our lives, Lord, let the singers go first, Lord. Let singing come first in our lives, Lord. For every parent that's here, for every person with an illness that they're going to be facing this week, God, let singing come first. God, let us rejoice in what we know about you. God, for every situation that's broken in our lives, every relational conflict every financial difficulty that we can imagine mauling us in the days ahead. Lord, whatever it is, God, let singing come first. God, we're not trying to fake it until we make it, but it might feel that way. God, what we're just trying to do is acknowledge the greater truth that's on the field with us. God, let singing come first. Lord, would you fill this room right now with rejoicing? Rejoicing now, Lord, before the bears on the ground. Rejoicing now, Lord, we know something. So as we sing this song, Lord, may these words be the grace in which we stand. We stand in these words. We believe these words. We take courage in these words. We're not running from our situation because we trust in you. And God, we pull the trigger right now in this song on rejoicing in the midst of the bears in the face.
1: We won't fear the battle, Lord. Sing this with me. We won't fear the battle We won't fear the night We will walk the valley With you by our side You will go before us You will lead the way We have found a refuge Only you can save Sing with joy now, our God is for us The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress Raise your voice now, no love is greater Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Even when I stumble, even when I fall even when I turn back, still Your love is sure. You will not abandon. You will not forsake. You will cheer me on with never-ending grace. See with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Neither high nor death can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us. He who gave his son to free us. Hold me in his love. Neither high nor death can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us who gave his son to free us holds me in his love sing with joy now our God is for us The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? No one, church, no one can stand against us if our God is for us. God bless you. Have a great day. May the Lord of all glory be with you this week. Amen.